Good morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn to Luke chapter 19. Luke 19, we'll look at verses 41 and then 45 and 6. Luke 19, 41 and 45 and 6. Uh, let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, how good it is to be in your house, to look at your inspired and errant word. We ask, Father, that your scriptures would challenge us, encourage us, gently reprove us, that we might be more and more in the image and the likeness of your Son. We thank you for a familiar text today, and we ask that we would be reminded of truths that we know and perhaps embrace truths that we haven't formally thought about. God, our time we ask. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. This morning, as part of our text, Jesus will make this statement. Your house shall be called a house of prayer, but they have turned it into a den of robbers. In the context, of course, it's referring to the temple in Jerusalem. It's referring to God's church and how some individuals have turned God's church into a personal profiteering place, a place to expand one's business footprint, a place where one desires to make business contacts and to expand one's bottom line. As I thought about the text, I thought I would share two illustrations, neither of which are from Highland, so you can breathe and exhale. The first was when I was away and I visited a church outside our tradition, or at least outside of my tradition. I uh, went to the front door, they handed me a little brochure, a bulletin. I went in, sat in a pew, and it was before the sermon, because I would never do this during the sermon. But I noticed that the uh, bulletin was rather thick, rather robust, and so I opened it up, and a number of pages fell out, and I, I realized, looking at it, that the pages were a number of businesses represented by individuals in the church. And I inquired a little later from someone I knew in that congregation, and she or he confirmed, yes, what happened is that the church would make money each month, and the businesses would advertise their wares, and in this way, everybody seemed to win. Now, I would never call that a den of robbers, but I would say that it is out of step with anything we read in Scripture where the church has a number of purposes, one of which is not to expand one's business footprint, to make business contacts, to sell one's wares. The church is a place of worship. It's a place of prayer. It's a place of reading and studying God's inerrant, inspired word. It's a place to equip the saints to go out into the world to reach a world that is lost. It's a place of refuge from the world, a place of fellowship among the brethren and sisters. That are the purposes, or these are the purposes 
of the church. Now, I picked on a tradition outside my own, so let me pick on a church within my own tradition. It's actually the church I pastored in Pennsylvania, and something happened there that I still think about from time to time, and I don't think upon it fondly. In that particular church, we had a number of mailbox slots. This church used to have them at one time. One mailbox slot per family where we would be able to communicate with families of up-and-coming events. And there were two signs, one on the right and one on the left, right and left, depending on my right and left. And the sign said something as follows, you cannot use these mailboxes to promote business. It was very clear, and it was followed most of the time. I remember one particular Sunday, however, when it wasn't followed. There was a gal who apparently had a personal business. She sold intimate night clothing, and uh, she would apparently have these parties. A friend of hers would perhaps invite guests, and they would have crumpets and tea or cookies and coffee, whatever. It's none of my business. I don't care. They didn't invite me, and I'm happy not to go. And, uh, but on this particular Sunday, she decided to invite some people in the church. Actually, she invited every family in the church by putting a brochure in each mailbox, and I still, it is seared on my mind. I remember the tagline. Ladies, if you think a teddy is a cuddly bear, you need to come to my party. That went in every mailbox in the church. If you don't think that I got calls that day from every elder <laughs> and half the congregation, you would be mistaken. What had she done? Well, besides the questionable tagline, she had turned God's church into a place to advance her career. She had forgotten the purposes of the church, to worship God, to pray, to teach His inspired and errant word, to equip the saints to go out as a refuge from the world and a place of fellowship. These are the purposes of the church. And the violation of those purposes is not just a 21st century issue, it's a first century issue as well. I want to pick up in Luke 19, I'll read verse 41 and then verses 45 and 6. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, verse 45, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. As you and I begin, we find Jesus in the city of Jerusalem. This is the fourth time we know that Jesus was in Jerusalem. All four times he was there for the festival of the Passover. You remember when he's 12 years old, he's in Jerusalem, and he has been separated from his parents. They have no idea where Jesus is. They've actually started home and realized Jesus is in the caravan. They come back, and much to their surprise, 
perhaps it shouldn't have been, but much to their surprise, they find Jesus with the teachers up on the Temple Mount. And the teachers are astounded at the wisdom of Jesus. And then in John chapter 2, a text very much like Luke 19, except it's the same event that took place three years earlier in AD 27, we have Jesus at the feast of Passover, and again he's overturning tables and he's driving out the money changers. Then it happens a second time, not the overturning of the table, but that in those three years of earthly ministry, Jesus in the middle year is also at the feast of Passover in Jerusalem. And again at the end, Luke 19, we're in the third year of Jesus' public ministry, and again he's in Jerusalem, and again it's the feast of Passover. And as Jesus enters the city, the text tells us that he wept. I don't know about you, but I love this detail that is given to us in Scripture about Jesus, the heart of Jesus, shepherding Jesus. Jesus looks out over the populace, and he sees people who are far from the Lord. He looks out over the populace, and he sees people who are confused about their need of a Savior, people who perhaps are self-sufficient, People who do not understand that we are sinners in need of grace. That we are sinners in need of forgiveness. That our sin separates us from a holy God. But God loved the world so much that he sent his only begotten son. Fully God also took on humanity. The God-man, the hypostatic union, lived a perfect life here on earth. Never sinned, yet paid the penalty of sin, which is death. He offered himself as a sacrifice that if we by faith would believe in Christ, we would be given eternal life. Jesus looks out over the city. He sees so many in Jerusalem, in Wausau, wherever we live. He sees so many that are far, that are confused. And the heart of Jesus is to weep for the lost. And you remember one of our core values, our sixth core value is that people matter to God, therefore they need to matter to us. One part of taking the next step in our relationship with Jesus is that we care about people, that we have the shepherding heart of Jesus. Jesus saw the populace and he wept. They need Jesus. That's the heart of Christ. Example of the disinterest many have in the things of God in Jerusalem, is in verses 45 and 6. Rather than protecting God's house, rather than protecting God's church, rather than seeing God's church as a place of worship, a place of prayer, a place of teaching and preaching God's word, a place to equip the saints to go out, a place of refuge from the world, a place of fellowship, we have some spiritual leaders who are treating God's house as a den of thieves. They have treated God's missionary house as a place to make a dollar. And although the account of Acts chapter 2 happens three years earlier in AD 27, the account of John 2 and Luke 19 are fairly similar. And in both accounts, the high priest is a man named Caiaphas. Now, the high priest is a Sadducee. 
that's always true. Not a Pharisee, a Sadducee. And you remember that the Sadducees were wealthy. They were politically connected. They had a strict interpretation of the Torah, the first five books of Scripture. Torah means law. And they did not believe in the afterlife. And Caiaphas is the high priest. And yet he's not the high priest. Now at that point, you're probably thinking, I'm speaking in tongues, we need to call for an interpreter. How can he be the high priest and, and not the high priest simultaneously? Well, he is and he is not. Think of it this way. The high priest is like the Pope. The Pope is Pope for life. And you only get one of them, one at a time. The high priest is high priest for life, and you only get one of them, one at a time. When Benedict XVI, in February of 2013, abdicated the papacy, he was the first pope in 600 years to leave the papacy while still alive. You are the pope, you get one of them, and you're pope for life. If you're the high priest, you get one of them, and you're high priest for life. Yet during the time of Jesus, we have two high priests, a rabbinical no-no. We have Annas, and we have Caiaphas. That's not confusion in the Gospels. That actually is historically true. How do we end up with two high priests? Well, you remember that Israel is an occupied nation, Rome is in control, and Rome sacked the high priest Annas and appointed his son-in-law Caiaphas as high priest. Now, those who follow Rome believe that the high priest is Caiaphas, but Orthodox strict Jews would not accept Caiaphas as high priest because Annas is still alive. And so to them, Annas is high priest, to many, Caiaphas is high priest. We have two high priests. Again, a rabbinical no-no. But don't worry. These two hucksters are in cahoots together. They're going to do things to God's temple that we can only imagine should not happen. You think of the Temple Mount. 37 acres. It's a large piece of property. And you would come to the temple at least once during your life, but if you were within 15 miles, at least once a year, probably more often, maybe seven times for seven feasts, and you would sacrifice animals, unblemished animals that had passed inspection. You would sacrifice maybe ram or oxen or sheep, or maybe you would buy some doves or maybe some wine that is acceptable or grain that is acceptable for certain types of sacrifice. Now you could bring these products from your home, but that might be difficult if you live up north in the Galilee. So for convenience sake, it's been there for decades, probably for centuries. 
up at the Mount of Olives on the north side, the scope is few. If you've been to Israel with me, you know the scope is few. It's the place where you have in your background the old city of Jerusalem. It's the place where your picture was taken as a group and you might have gotten a group photo. Every group goes to the Scopus Mount. Every single group. It's a photo op. And in Israel, they don't miss opportunities for any kind of op that comes with finances. So in the Scopus view, they had four bazaars, four marketplaces. They had been there for decades, probably centuries. That's the Mount of Olives. It's only a half a mile from the Temple Mount. There you could buy your sheep, your oxen, your ram. You could buy your doves. You could buy your uh, sacrificial wines or grains. And then you would head on over to the temple and you would sacrifice them. Herein lies the diabolical brilliance of Annas and Caiaphas. They got to thinking, you know, I could make church into a money-making situation. I could expand my footprint. I can make money in God's house. And so, although we've had these four markets there for decades, possibly centuries, they decided within the temple, they would set up a place where you could buy animals. Now, where would you do that in the temple? Hmm. The largest part of the temple is the court of Gentiles. <laughs> it's for Gentiles. No Jew would possibly object to setting up a bazaar or marketplace in the court of Gentiles because, frankly, many Jews were offended that we even had a court for Gentiles. And so they set up a place where you could buy animals. Now, Annas and Caiaphas are pretty smart. They're going to understand the realtor's dream. Location, location, location. Now, think about this. Let's suppose you came from a long, long way off. It's been a long, tiring trip, and you have to stop at the Mount of Olives to buy your animal. Now, the Mount of Olives is 2,700 feet above sea level, but you have to go down to the Kidron Valley, which is 2,000 feet below sea level. You've got to go down 700 feet. Then you have to go back up to the Temple Mount, which is 2,428 feet above sea level. You have to go up 428 vertical feet. So it's not just a half a mile. It's 1,128 vertical feet up or down that you have to traverse, not only with all your luggage, because you've traveled from a long way, but now you've got animals in tow. Or, <laughs> thanks to Annas and Caiaphas and their very good heart, you can buy animals right there in the court of Gentiles and then sacrifice them as a temporary atonement. Location, location, location. But Annas and Caiaphas had a second thing going for them. These twin hucksters, they've got a lot going up their sleeve. You see, in order to sacrifice in the temple... You need an acceptable sacrifice, an unblemished sacrifice. Now, to the average eye, it's impossible to tell the difference between blemished and unblemished, acceptable and unacceptable. In fact, a rabbi 
had to live 18 months, 18 months on a farm training to tell the difference between acceptable and unacceptable or blemished, unblemished. 18 months. So I hate to tell you, I know you've traveled a long way. Some of you came with animals in tow. You brought them all the way from the Galilee down south, but these priests are in cahoots with Annas and Caiaphas. These priests are having their pockets lined by Annas and Caiaphas. It really doesn't matter what your animal looks like. It's blemished. It's unacceptable. Or... If you went to those rival markets that had been there for decades, maybe centuries, and you brought them for a half mile, I hate to tell you, you've been had. You were sold unacceptable, blemished animals. But out of the goodness of Ananias and Caiaphas's heart, you don't need to take those blemished animals back. We'll buy them for pennies on the shekel from you. They're worthless. You don't want to have to carry them all the way home. And then we'll sell you one of our unblemished, acceptable animals that you can sacrifice. And so our twin hucksters have got you two ways. But they're not just two trick ponies. They're at least three. You see, now that you've got to go and buy one of our animals, you need temple shekels. You came with those Roman arias or Roman denarii. Not acceptable on the Temple Mount, but we have some tables over here. We call them the money changer tables. For a slight markup, maybe 10 or 20%, we will exchange your Roman currency for shekels at the Temple, of which you can then buy our animals guaranteed to be unblemished so that you can sacrifice at the temple for a temporary atonement for sin. Our twin huckers, twin hucksters, they got you three ways, but score four for them because they've got you one more way. After you've offered your sacrifices and you've gone home, it's been a miracle. But those animals that once were blemished and unacceptable, now that you're gone, that we bought back for pennies on the shekel, praise the Lord, they're now acceptable. And we will sell them to the next group of tourists. This is how Annas and Caiaphas turned God's temple into a money-making scam. Is it any wonder in verse 46 that Jesus said, My house should be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of robbers. Is it any wonder that Jesus in John 2 overturned the money tables and chased out the money changers? Is it any wonder in our text for today in verse 5 that he drove out those who sold? Or in verse 41, that he wept over a city with this kind of spiritual leadership is there hope for the people. As you and I think about this account, I think there's certain things that we can directly apply to our lives today. The first application we've already talked about, but let's talk about it again. What are the purposes of God's church? It's not to expand our financial footprint. It's not to look for business contacts. 
It's not to somehow make our financial welfare a little better. The purpose is, clearly in Scripture for God's church, is corporate worship. Corporate and individual prayer. The teaching and preaching of God's inspired and errant word. It's to equip the saints to go out into a world, to minister to a world that is lost. It's a refuge from the world and it's fellowship within the body of believers. Clear purposes for God's church. And when we don't follow these purposes, we'll see in John chapter 2 that it says, Zeal for my Father's house consumed me. Jesus is terribly upset when we don't follow these purposes and we go outside of them for self-purpose. The second thing I want to remember from the text is this. We so need the heart of Jesus. I know so many of you already have similar hearts to Jesus. A heart that sees people that are far from the Lord. A heart that sees individuals, a city that doesn't even know how sinful they are and how in need of a Savior all of us are. And Jesus wept over that kind of city. Jesus went to the cross for that kind of city. Jesus paid the penalty of sin, which is death. And he who knew no sin became sin for us, that through him we might become the righteousness of God. He has that kind of heart for the people. We need that kind of heart for people. Third, I want to imitate Jesus' understanding of the church. Now understand that Jesus is a man's man. I don't mean that in a chauvinistic way, but in a testosterone type of way. He's a tecton. That is, he's a stone carpenter. Jesus has guns for biceps. He's not a wimpy guy. He's a powerful guy. And yet scripture says that he's a prince of peace in Isaiah 9 and Matthew 11. Talks about him as gentle and meek. But it also says that he forcefully advances the kingdom as forceful men lay hold of it. And in John chapter 2, the 15th verse, excuse me, the 17th verse, it says, zeal for my father's house consumed me. Now think about that. The Father's house is the church. The bride is the church. And zeal, zeal for God's house consumed Jesus. Sometimes we're cavalier about the church. Sometimes, maybe even rightly so, we're disgusted with the church. The church is 100% filled with grade A sinners, hypocrites, fallen, finite people. And yet the church is still God's idea. The church is still God's bride. And in spite of the fact that the church is is filled with failure, we need to think well of the church. We need to speak well of the church. We need to work to improve the church for God's glory. I grieve when I hear people disparage the church or talk poorly about the church to their children and grandchildren. And I think to myself, 
Do you think they're going to grow up and go to church when you have spoken that way to your children and grandchildren about the church? Zeal. Zeal for my father's house consumes me. And so in spite of the fact that the church is filled with hypocrites, is filled with finite and failed individuals, the church is God's idea. It is his bride. And we are called to be a part of it, to work to improve it for his glory, and to speak well of it. Is this your view? Is this my view of the church? Jesus looks out over a city. And he weeps for the people who are lost. He looks out over a city and he weeps for the people who are confused. And then he goes into God's house and he sees people who know better. Who are abusing God's house. And in John 2 he overturns the tables. He fashions a bullwhip. He drives the people out. And in Luke 19. He tells us that they have turned God's house into a den of robbers. We need to view God's house, treat God's house as God desires. We need the heart of Jesus. I need the heart of Jesus. So do you. Let's pray. Father God, as uh, we continue our study in the Gospel of Luke, we thank you for a familiar account, and yet one that perhaps we need to think afresh and anew and apply rightly to our lives. Father, I thank you for the model of so many who have compassion over the populace, who have a desire to reach the confused and the lost. And I thank you for many who treat your house with such high regard and respect and speak of your house with such high regard and respect. And Father, where we have failed, where I have failed, I pray that you would correct us, correct me, and help us to have a high view, a biblical view of your house. Thank you for your word. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.